everyone. Welcome back to Discourse from the Big Chair. I'm Steve Cuff, and joining me today is Steve Coleman. And if you're tuning in for the first time, maybe this isn't the best place to start. Maybe you should go back to episode one. You see, this is a podcast miniseries where me and Steve Coleman are going through every single album in Tears for Fears discography. Uh, Steve is a longtime Tears for Fears fan. Me, I just started listening to them a few weeks ago. So we're kind of going through this experience together. And then in a couple of weeks, we're going to head to Detroit, and I'm going to see Tears for Fears live for the first time. Very exciting. Steve Coleman, how are you doing today? I'm doing well, Steve Cuff. How are you doing? I'm, I'm doing okay, all things considered. Uh, I got to say, though, I, I, don't, I don't know how in love I was with uh, this week's album. <laughs> <laughs> Raul and the Kings of Spain. That's right. We're on. We're on. What is this? The the fifth? The fourth? This is the fifth. The fifth. Oh my God! How time flies when you're listening to Tears for Fears records for a podcast. Am I right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, so, Raul and the Kings of Spain. This came out in the mid '90s. Is that right? This is 95, uh, actually, especially considering in, when you think about Tears for Fears, a very quick follow-up to 1993's Elemental. Yeah, I'm used to them, or I mean, and by them at this point, it's just Roland Orzabal. So I'm used to him waiting, what, like four years, five years, you know? Uh, ten. Ten or more, and yeah. So this was a pretty quick turnaround, and stylistically, it does share a lot in common with uh, Elemental, I think, to a degree. I mean, it's certainly more rock-oriented. A good way to think of this, I think, is, I guess, a comparison that's a little bit more near and dear to me. So after Radiohead put out Kid A, they followed that up shortly thereafter with Amnesiac, which was stylistically similar, but for all intents and purposes, just kind of sounded like a B-side companion to the previous album. And that's kind of the vibe I got from Raul and the Kings of Spain. Ooh. Yeah. It just... <laughs> and that really... And you know what? That's that's okay. Because Elemental, I wasn't in love with it, much to the chagrin of many a Tears for Fears fan. Which... My own father. Yeah, what does your dad say about me? He said, uh, you got to get your act together, man. I got to get my act together? I don't even know what that means. That's such a dad thing to say to someone. <laughs> I think it was actually, yeah, you need to get real. Sorry. Oh, Got to get real? He, he's listening to this podcast. Ah, I'm, I he assure said, you, Mr. Coleman, I am keeping it as real as humanly possible. <laughs> Elemental was okay. It's just, it's it's not my bag. And I, you know, and also I think in the grand scheme of things, it just, it, it doesn't hold up. But we're not talking about Elemental today. We're talking about Raul and the Kings of Spain. So Kurt Smith is still out of the picture for this one, right? Yeah, no, he, you can tell he's completely out at this point. I think there was still some lingering Kurt Smith ghosts in Elemental, mm-hmm. if only for the fact that some of the material pertains to him, the person. Sure, but sure. But now, yeah, this is uh, the full-on Roll Endorsable show. Oh, boy. And let's just jump right into the first track, kind of give our listeners a, a, a little treat here. And if you're not familiar with Tears for Fears, which it's entirely possible, um, I would say before I even play anything, this is not the best place to start with Tears for Fears. (laughs) Don't start here. All right, here we go. You got to get to that 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 sweet sweet (laughs) raw. 
This is a, a, a hell of an intro. It's a grand intro. It, it really is. And then this. Wait, oh my god. You gotta get to that chorus. I need it. I need it. There we go. That's what I was waiting for. Okay. So uh, this here's there's our title track right there. Um, I yeah. So I, I was actually a little bit excited the first time I turned this on. I'm like, oh, I kind of like this opening riff. You know, it's it's nothing incredibly original. Like I, it's you know, it's nothing crazy. It's nothing off the wall. But it seems like it's fun. Those drums kick in, and then it just kind of like falls flat for me. Um, and I worried too because I do have a tendency, believe this, believe it or not, and if you listen to any other Optimism Vaccine podcast, I'm sure you believe it. I have a tendency to be a bit of a curmudgeon. So uh, earlier today, Amanda, my girlfriend, was it was in the bedroom. I was listening to the record again, and I was like, "Okay, I want to play you this song, and I want you to tell me what your first like just first instinct is like thirty seconds in." And it was the exact same thing. It seemed kind of interesting, and then as soon as he starts singing, it's just like, oh, man. <laughs> just takes all the air out of it for me. So you're a fan of the chorus versus not so much is what I'm gathering. Yeah, and that kind of highlights a big issue on this album for me, aside from the fact that I don't know if some of the some the music and the singing don't necessarily jive all the time, but it would have been excusable and it not been for the fact that these are like easily, I think, the worst lyrics out of all the Tears for Fears albums so far. Just, just in this song, or overall? Oh, overall, <laughs> overall. There's a lot of moments in this. In, in fact, and again, we whenever I try and do this, I try and go in blind. If if you're just listening for the first time, so I don't read interviews, I don't read reviews, I just listen to it, and I try not to talk to Steve ahead of time either because I don't want to, you know miss anything that can be discussed on air but one of the things i did do, do and we'll get to this later is i i text him in all caps what i would say is <laughs> maybe some of the dumbest lyrics i've ever heard like i actually when i heard that for the first time i stopped and i restarted the song like two or three times just to make sure i was getting it but we'll get into that later yeah lyrically this album's a little bit rough and i can't put a finger on it like i think their first record, obviously, The Hurting, there's a few kind of lyrical duds, but I, I can excuse it because they were kids almost at the time. What were they, like 20 or something when that when they were doing that album? Yeah, barely. Yeah, so you're allowed to, you know, just kind of be like an angsty teen. Uh, that's fine. This time around, I don't, I don't even know what the songs are about most of the time, which isn't necessarily a good or bad thing. But it's just like you, you have this strange motif throughout the album of, uh, you know, I don't know, Spanish music and kings. And that's the only thing I can really grasp onto. And there's just a lot of weird, weird stuff in here that doesn't sound good. <laughs> well, interesting you bring this all up. Uh, I was going to say that Raul and the Kings of Spain is probably the hardest album for anybody who is not familiar with Tears for Fears. Or even it's difficult for casual fans of the band because the record does require a lot of context. Okay. And I think that's something that probably even Roland Orsbull maybe took for granted because this is actually a very, um, very personal album. Mm -hmm. um, and it sort of brings the Tears for Fear story full circle in a way. 
Okay. If the hurting is him describing him suffering as a child, a lot of ways it's him, Raul and the Kings of Spain is him struggling to be an adult. Uh, the actual album title isn't just like this mystical, mysterious thing. It's actually, it has a very literal meaning. Okay. Um, Raul Norsville was actually born Raul. Really? Yeah. Oh, wow. Uh, and his parents changed his name because, I mean, they were living in England and they didn't think, you know, school kids would be able, able to pronounce his name. So they changed, or at least I think that's how the story goes. So they changed it mm-hmm. to Roland to anglicize it. And um, the history, though, is that uh, Roland Orzabal's father was sort of this, like, kind of a monster. Okay. And uh, would always make uh, the story behind at least the titles that, like, he'd always make Roland like right out the family tree when he was a little kid. And his father was French and Spanish and Argentinian. And he claimed that they descended from Kings. Oh, um, so literally Raul and the Kings of Spain is they are part of Spanish royalty, allegedly, according to his father. And a lot of this record, especially this first song is basically him trying to purge himself of being becoming his father. Oh, gee. Well, now I feel like a dick for hating the lyrics. So. <laughs> Don't worry. <laughs> Sorry, did I, I left too loud? No, that's that's fine. But I mean, you know, that'd be great if the first track was just an, an introduction by Roland Orzabal explaining <laughs> all of this so that I would kind of get it. But as it stands, like you read that title and you just think to yourself, like, is it what is this a Yes album? You know, it just it just seems like a prog rock record title. Uh, yeah. And it, yeah, I, I don't know. <laughs> and there is definitely a prog rock element. We'll kind of get into further songs just because, like, there is definitely a theme. I wouldn't say it's a concept album, but it's definitely a story album. And it's a story sure. really about him struggling to be a married. He just had a kid at this point. His son is actually his first son's name is Raul. Okay. He had, uh, I believe they had the kid just before he started writing for this album. Oh. Somewhere between this and Elemental. Okay, okay. Um, but yeah, and like this first song is basically him trying to not become his father. Uh, wow. You know, and I know like if you grow up in like a decent household, you have to say like, oh, I don't want to grow up like my father. And then, you know, you turn like 40 something and you're in the backyard burning shish kebabs and suspender yeah. socks and you go, oh, just like dad, father <laughs> likes <son." laughs> Hey, that's already happening to me, man. Come on. Oh, yeah. yeah me too. If, if my dad ever burned kebabs, I don't think he would. But no. I would. I also don't have a backyard. But if I did, rest assured, <laughs> I'd be burning things on a grill. Oh, um, yeah. Wow. Okay. Well, yeah, now I kind of feel like a dick because that makes a little <laughs> bit more sense. But And you know what? Thematically, I think – if if you're gonna, if I'm gonna say one really positive thing about this album, as much as I didn't like it, um, I suppose it, it probably flows a little bit better than Elemental. Like it, I don't know, it feels a little bit more focused, maybe to me, even if I don't like its focus. If that makes yeah. any sense. Oh yeah, absolutely. Like I think like this album closest to the hurting actually is their most is the most cohesive Tears for Fears album. Like there mm-hmm. is like the structure is there. Like it makes sense why all of these songs are together with maybe the exception of one or two. Sure. Sure. Yeah. I, I agree a hundred percent, a hundred percent. All right. Let's, uh, let's go ahead and I'm going to queue up the second track here. Maybe falling down, falling down. 
not the theme song to that Michael Douglas movie. No. Yeah, this actually plays while Michael Douglas is trying to order McDonald's breakfast, but it's uh, it's 10.31 a.m. and you can't get it. He just wants his pancakes, man. He wants to see his daughter and eat his pancakes. I'm sorry. Uh, bit, of a, bit of a Michael Douglas tangent. Um, this, I don't know how you feel about the song, Steve Cuff, but yeah. I, uh, it's one of my favorite Tears for Fear songs, legitimately. Yeah, I, I actually really like this one. Um, this track, and then I guess it'd be the what is it, the fourth track, mm-hmm. I, I, th- I feel like are probably the two strongest moments of this record. And yeah, this one, it, it really stuck out to me because... It's got a couple of different like it, it stylistically changes a few times. Like mm-hmm. I think it's gonna go into it maybe. No, maybe not. Uh, oh yeah, it's gonna, <laughs> gonna rock out in a second. Yeah, it also does a thing that I really enjoy when Tears for Fears does well, which is not just those stylistic shifts, but they, they layer, you know, the different the different instruments, uh, the different tracks, and then they, they let each track breathe. Yeah, there we go. Mm-hmm. And I think in general on this album, and this kind of falls in line with Elemental, and I'm sure this was also recorded in a smaller studio, um, it's just way too compressed. And this album, even more so than Elemental, I feel like there's songs on here where all of those beautiful layers are just smushed together. And after I'd been listening to Raul and the Kings of Spain all week, I went back and I listened to The Hurting, and I was just like, oh, God, I wish this was that. (laughs) But yeah, I, I do like this song because yeah, it's it's one of the few tracks where you can actually pick out the different parts that are going on here. Yeah, and I think that um, he's working with the same production team. He's working with Tim Palmer again. Uh, again, Tim Palmer, who's best known for sort of being like a go-to mixer, like he mixed Pearl Jam's Ten and a lot of other grunge era records, a lot mm-hmm. of Robert Plant records, actually. And um, but he's actually a producer with Roland Orzabal and Alan Griffiths on this album and I was actually thinking to myself today I think that a lot of the sound of this album is maybe even more of a reflection of his ability as a producer less okay. than it is maybe Roland Orzabal's sure sure uh, I, yeah I think that that's probably fair to say um, yeah the other thing I really like about this song is I think it highlights Roland Orzabal's vocals in the right way in this kind of stage in his career especially Considering how the vocals are on the first track, you know, I was I was joking around earlier when he does his raw, you know, that that falsetto <laughs> and that big like almost operatic voice of his, mm. and a lot of times where it may have worked in the like '80s era stuff when they were going for that big operatic, uh, you know, pop sound, uh, but it, it doesn't it doesn't really gel as well with the '90s rock oriented music that he was making. Mm-hmm. So I, I feel like when he kind of like, you know, he dials it back a little bit on this track. And I, I really think that helps out the song a lot. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and you, I mean, you get an impression of his range, but it's also restrained enough where he's not totally giving himself away. Yeah, yeah. Because, you know, he's got a big, strong voice. And I think there's a real tendency for his, his vocals to just get pushed to the front of the mix and sort of overpower everything. And that can be problematic, especially yeah. when the lyrics aren't eh, necessarily great. Mm. Um, I mean, I think they're probably on this album, but like probably some of the strongest 
mm-hmm. for the most part. Um, yeah, yeah, and, and yeah, that, that doesn't necessarily apply to this track. I think this track is, you know, lyrically, musically, everything kind of comes together on this one. Yeah, and the band is great. Uh, he's actually the band that's on this record is from uh, his Elemental tour. Um, probably most notable would be Gail Ann Dorsey, who wound up playing bass for David Bowie shortly after this. Mm-hmm. That's cool. Very yeah. cool. Roland Orzabal doing the Lord's work even in the nineties, and then mm-hmm. and then we move on to something something else entirely. My God, <laughs> can, I, can I just say I hate 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 this song? Tears for Fears fans, I'm sorry. I have not used that word very frequently when I've been listening to these records. I hate this song. Let me play you a little bit of it. Let me play a snippet. <laughs> Is that an ambulance coming to take me away when my brain explodes? Yeah, sorry, everybody. <laughs> Jesus. I just wanna I'm gonna read you my notes as this plays. <laughs> All I wrote was Wow, I hate this song and then underneath that I, I scribbled a few things and then it just says Monster Ballads Cut <laughs> Which if you remember Monster Ballads was like uh, a CD that they sold on television in the nineties that featured like just ballads from 80s hair metal bands oh no <laughs> and that's what I thought of like this like Mr. Big plays and then Extreme plays and then this plays oh it's so hokey I just I can't I can't Steve I can't are you, no. you, you going to talk me off the ledge with this one, or is it indefensible? No, actually, I'm not. Um, because um, I will say that when I was even younger and first getting into Tears for Fears, more devotedly so, uh, I mean, this album was the toughest one for me to get over, and definitely Secrets was one of those songs where I was just like, I can't, I don't know. And I think a lot of it, like, I wouldn't even say, like, Monster Ballads is, like, worse than i would have gone with it but i definitely got like a like there's just something about the guitar and i think it's played very well but it's so clean and so like Mm -hmm. cheesy on a level of like journey cheesy yeah that's what it always made me think of and it's weird like because uh actually um this album was remastered and released in the uk in 2009 um which is kind of a bizarre thing in, its, in and of itself. But there's a really long interview with Roland Orzabal, and he talks about secrets. And obviously, you know, throughout this whole period, he's working through um, some issues in his marriage. Yeah. Um, and I think that this song, and obviously a lot of other songs deal with, but like he calls it uh, his Neil Young song. What? Really? And it, at first I was kind of like, what? is he talking about? Like, no way. And the more I think about it, and like, I just sort of in my head strip away some of the layers, like lyrically, I don't even have any problems with it. There's maybe a few couplets that are just like a little cheesy, but I think it's more in the context of the production of the song that they seem a bit more cheesy. And I could see like, if he would have maybe just stripped down to production, maybe played it a little bit differently. Like this song would be a lot more powerful and Mm -hmm. wouldn't come off as so like, <laughs> like uh, it's like such a ham-fisted love song. Yeah, um, yeah. Well, and, and I'm glad that you 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 brought up the guitar part too because I agree. Like it's it's played well, and the riff isn't necessarily bad. 
But the no. tone is just way off. And I hate to go back to the whole dad thing, but it's such a dad rock riff when it's played that way. And that's kind of a problem that that's reoccurring on this record in some, in the slower songs and in some of the rock out songs, where it's just like, God, you sound like a, just like a bunch of like 45 year old men who get out of work and then they play like journey covers in their garage to get away yeah. from the misses and the kids. And that's not okay. <laughs> and these guys aren't that old. And I think part of like, even when I was younger listening to this out to this song specifically, like what bothered me about it was like, yeah, it did sound like a bunch of like, older dudes trying to kind of recapture their glory. And at this point, you know, not that age matters, but like Tears for Fears hasn't been around that long. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's kind of like, there's, I don't know. Like, I don't know if there was just like a weird thing going on in the studio and it just kind of came out like this very, like it sounded like an eighties band trying to sound contemporary without leaving that eighties sound. And that's something I never would have said about them. That's something I never do say about them. But in yeah. this moment, I'm kind of like, Ugh, come on. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, and before we started this project and I was thinking about tears for fears, like when, when you would say, Oh, you know, tears for fears put out a record in 2004 and it's awesome. Or, you know, tears for fears was still putting out records in the nineties in my head. When I was thinking, oh, Tears for Fears, even though I had no idea that they put out some amazing music, uh, this is what I expected everything to sound like, was this. Like, this is all my nightmares realized, is this song. Yeah, and it's it, uh, it sucks because I can't, like, <laughs> I, can't, I can't take that away, and I can't disagree. Um, I will say again that I do like what its intentions might be just as a song that exists, but production-wise, yeah, it, sort of just this always left me scratching my head mm-hmm. going why um like i could imagine the song with maybe even like just like even if the tone on the guitar was different it was, if it wasn't so clean yeah and crisp like if it was like maybe not even grungy but just kind of like if they did like a more lo-fi attempt at this mm-hmm. i think it would be awesome actually i would love to hear that but yeah yeah, yeah just not uh not in the cards man not in the cards that's not an easy thing for me to say either but, I know that that's not. It looks like it, it's. It sounded like you really had to strain yourself to say it. But I'm, I'm glad, and I'm glad that, you know, I've enjoyed this whole process. But I am glad that at least there's one song where I can feel justified in my initial blind hatred of Tears for Fears. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. But, but I would say like impeach them on secrets alone. Yeah, don't don't do that. I mean, good God. Yeah, if your whole justification for I'm not gonna listen to Tears for Fears is the third track on their like mid nineties album isn't good, I mean, you know, there's worse things out there. Alright. Let's move on. So this next track is another one that I really enjoyed. Mm-hmm. And this yeah. is God's Mistake. And again, just like track two, I feel like Part of the reason why I like this is it was reminiscent of their first album a little bit for me. Like, it's Mm -hmm. got kind of this, like, post-punk groove to it, and the vocals are very, very restrained. It almost reminds me of, like, a Radiohead song, circa, like, Pablo Honey era. Yeah, I could see that. I think um, definitely has that early 90s, kind of like, almost like where bands are trying to sound like power pop. Like, I don't want to say big star necessarily, but, Mm -hmm. like... Yeah, yeah, no, I, I totally agree, totally agree. 
And this is this is one of the tracks on here too where it it kind of has that vintage Tears for Fears sound, but at the same time, mm-hmm. it seems like they're a little bit more tapped into what's cool in England at the time, you know? Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, and it's it's just a straight up really good pop rock song. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. I think musically, I, even lyrically, I mean, I think it's a little bit like you can definitely tell he's referencing Einstein mm-hmm. uh, with the whole, uh, you know, God doesn't play dice line. Um, it's like sure, a, sure. a half love song, half about quantum physics. and um, <laughs> Just it's, like all the good love songs. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> My favorites. Uh, I don't know. Big Audio Dynamite did it, right? Or I don't know. Anyway, um, what's interesting about this song is this was the first U.S. single. And uh, I don't think it fared very well um, in the charts. And I actually <laughs> specifically remember um, in Milwaukee, there's this radio station. Uh, it was 94.5 WKTI, which still exists as like this like Jack FM kind of crappy iPod shuffle station now. But oh, God. at the time, they'd have New Music Tuesdays. And it was like the music challenge and they would pit one brand new song against another and like listeners would call in to vote for which song stays in rotation and which song gets kicked out of rotation. Oh, sure, and, uh, sure. I specifically remember God's Mistake by Tears for Fears went up against the song Time by Hootie and the Blowfish. <laughs> which was like the twentieth single off of their cracked rear view album. Um, and it won, <laughs> Hootie and the Blowfish won handily over Tears for Fears, and I was so pissed off, because I don't know if you remember the song Time by Hootie and the Blowfish. I don't, actually. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, like, I mean, you know, in Hootie's defense, I don't remember this song either, but something tells me I like this song a lot better than I'd like, you know, the 10th single from a Hootie and the Blowfish album. Yeah, well, they just were, they had such a handle on the pop, Charts and or not or not pop charts necessarily, which is pop culture. I think at least in the U.S., especially like whereas like Britpop is happening in the U.K. Mm-hmm. In the U.S., everybody's kind of like getting trying to get back to the roots. Everybody's trying to sound more American, for lack of a term. Sure, sure. And this definitely is like probably at least on this album one of the more British sounding Tears for Fears songs. Oh, absolutely. And one of the things that I was thinking about too when I was listening to this was. Um, one of my favorite bands, Primal Scream, which I guess you know they share the uh, the love of Primal Scream therapy, probably with Tears for Fears. <laughs> Just a bit. Yeah, ar- around this time, they were getting panned by critics, and nobody was buying their records because they're a British band, and they were trying to make like American sounding music. So they were putting out these like blues rock records in the mid '90s, and it's almost like the inverse of this, where I think. A lot of the reason why this album probably failed, I mean, there's probably a variety of reasons, but a big part of it is it's almost too British for what was going on in American music at the time. Mm-hmm. Although it's interesting to note that um, for this album, they actually jumped labels at the last minute. Um, this was originally supposed to come out on Mercury, which they had been signed to since the early 80s. And uh, I think Roland was able exercise this, like, clause in a contract because he didn't agree with somebody in A&R and they jumped ship to Epic Records and they were oh. signed by the same guy who signed Oasis to an American record deal. Oh, wow. Okay. So <laughs> that guy thought he was going to have Oasis 2.0 maybe? 
Mm-hmm. Or at least like, hey, well, Tears for Fears is British, so is Oasis. That went really well. Let's see what happens. Yeah, and... It's the same thing. Right. <laughs> and, you know, just as a testament to the catchiness of this tune, uh, I caught myself, like, whistling it in the office today. So, thankfully, no one stopped me and said, hey, Steve, what are you whistling? Because I would have had to say, well... I'm uh, whistling a failed single from a mid-90s Tears for Fears record. <laughs> but failed not because it wasn't good, because it's yes. a really good it song. It is a good song. It is a good song. And I feel like if all those people who voted for Hootie and the Blowfish could could go back in time now... Time? <laughs> I, I, think, I think they would not vote for time. They would vote for this song. I hope so. My goodness. Jesus. I, I that's really depressing, man. You know, even, really even when I was a kid is. who liked shitty music, I I thought Hootie and the Blowfish was lame. So I I feel really bad for you. <laughs> Broke my ten year old heart. I can only imagine the city of Milwaukee. All right, let's talk about some sketches of pain, Steve Coleman. Yeah, which I... is obviously a reference to sketches of Spain. There you go. Yeah, this song. I don't know. You know, it never, nothing about this song really stuck out to me too much. The only thing that I, I was thinking was, you know, maybe a song like this could have actually benefited from some of the big orchestral production that we saw on, uh, like, Sowing the Seeds of Love, you know, if you made this a bigger song instead of something that was so small and intimate. Uh, but other than that, I mean, I, I just, this one kind of washed over me. If I wasn't listening to this record end to end, for a podcast, I would probably skip over this one, and maybe I'm missing something, or am I am I not giving this track a fair shake? Well, I think that uh, on its own, I could agree with you, but like I think at least as far as like getting the flow of the album, getting the flow of the story, that this song fits in very well. Mm-hmm. Um, it sort of comes near the midpoint of the album, so it almost acts as like an intermission, and uh, I think that um, with um, a lot of the messages in this throughout this album about love, about you know relationships. I think this is just uh, something about Roland Rosebud getting emotions out and sort of describing how uh, you can, um, you know, when you want to. Um... <laughs> Sorry, it's okay. I'm... It's okay. Find those words, Steve. Coleman. It's, it's been a long day, everybody. Um, just that there's. Um, I don't know, like, kind of, it's almost like trying to write a song and trying to figure out how to get those emotions out. Okay. And I think that that kind of, like, symbolizes a lot of the struggle he's having throughout this entire album. And uh, there's also just sort of that Spanish theme. Obviously, there's the, uh, ends with that flamenco bridge, Mm -hmm. um, which my, and you said you wish that they had, like, more, like, sort of that bigger orchestral production. Yeah, yeah. That's one thing I miss from the song, too. Like, I just wish the horns were real. Yeah, that that really bugged me. That really rubbed me the wrong way. It's like, man, you couldn't have had real horns on there because, God, just something that simple can add so much to a song. Uh, I was actually thinking of, when I was when I was thinking of an example of that, even if you don't have, like, a big, you know, million dollar or million, you know, pounds sterling budget or whatever, um, the Walkmen... They put out a record, oh Jesus, in like 2007. But mm-hmm. for, for whatever reason, they uh, they prominently featured a trumpet player just out of nowhere. And there's a song called Louisiana, 
and it's just kind of this like slow starting song and then there's this kind of breakdown where you just hear this trumpet just kind of cutting through everything and it's beautiful and it's perfect and the record sounds like it was recorded for like ten dollars and a bag of twizzlers but it works (laughs) it works like it really has like an emotional impact and when i hear the horns on this song they just kind of they just hit me like a flaccid penis in the face man (laughs) <laughs> yeah I, <laughs> yeah it, it is a bummer um because i don't think it would have cost them that much more and this is still like i mean a very well produced i mean it's not like they just i know that half of it was recorded in uh his home studio again in neptune's kitchen in mm-hmm. bath uk but some of this was also recorded at the record plant in uh california which is the studio, I think they recorded Rumors there from Fleetwood Mac. They oh. recorded Sports by Huey Lewis in the News there. Um, so it's like, yeah, we could have like maybe just like a three-piece horn section for you know an hour. <laughs> just play this really quick. I, I, I think they sh- they could have been able to swing that. I don't I don't understand the, the stylistic choice, and I don't think we'll ever know because that's not something. You'd be like, hey, Roland Rosewell, why don't you? Uh, yeah, put up the cash. Or- Buddy, 20 years ago, why didn't you do that? Then he's going to throw his flaccid penis on your face. Yeah. <laughs> Hopefully not. Hopefully not. Roland, if you're <laughs> listening, if you're listening I love you. I don't love this thing. song. Don't don't hit me in the face with your penis. Um, <laughs> let's move on to the next song, which is Los Reyes Catalicos, which means... Los Reyes Catalicos. The, the Catholic Kings? I don't know. What does Catalicos mean? The Catholic Kings, you're oh, absolutely right. right. Okay. Well, yeah. Look at that. That's that's what eighth grade Spanish will do for you, right there. <laughs> and I thought I'd never use it. <laughs> All right, and here you are. And here I am. Me and Tears for Fears. It's a big learning experience for me. Uh, I mean, yeah, like this is it's it's fine. I, I guess it's it's one of the more stylistically interesting tracks on here like it sticks out as probably one of the more avant-garde tracks also it does this thing that i can't figure out and i'm gonna let hold on okay this vocal layering what what is going on is this a duet no, uh, it's just him. It's sort of like this, like almost like auto tune thing before auto tune. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's exactly what I was thinking. It, it sounds like, uh, oh god, what is his name? Uh, Dan Deacon when he uses like vocal modulators to change his voice and stuff. It's really weird and it's kind of creepy. Mm-hmm. And it's it's just subtle enough that like I, I was listening to this on Spotify and I know they have like lower audio quality or whatever. So at first I was like, maybe it's that. And then I listened to it through like really nice headphones on like high quality MP3s. And it was just, it just creeps me out. And part of it too, I think is not just the weird effect, but the kind of flat production that's going on here. So it kind of smooshes Mm -hmm. everything together and it's just, it's, it's just kind of creepy. Yeah, well, it, I think that uh, stylistically, like the choice is interesting because obviously, like there's the refrain "Ghosts all gone." He's talking about the Catholic kings, which is another reference to Raúl and the kings of Spain. He comes from a family of Catholics and the kings, and he's trying to purge himself of the ghosts of his father. These horrible people um, who have sort of the, that are part of his lineage. Mm-hmm. 
um, not repeat their mistakes. Um, so yeah, it's sort of like is like he's sort of like in this haunted mansion all by himself, uh, just hiding in a room, and the ghosts are surrounding him. I don't know. I mean, that's sort of the imagery I get. I don't necessarily know if that's what he was going for, or sure, if that's what sure. I really believe. But uh, yeah, like there's um, it sort of harkens back to like the very experimental B sides they did back in the early '80s. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that's, I think that's the vibe that's I got just, from uh, it. Yeah. So it's just him kind of playing around the studio, I think, and just sort of letting the results speak for themselves. Um, there are actually a lot of really interesting B-sides to Roll in the Kings of Spain as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and some of them that I think would have been better song choices for the album. Oh, now see, I didn't, I didn't have a chance to listen to those, so I might have to hunt those down. Well, uh, I'll, I'll hook you up. Well, what I was thinking too, and we could talk more about this off air, but, um, Obviously, we have one more studio album after this, and we're going to go see the live show and you know do kind of a recap from that. But I was thinking too, maybe we could dedicate an episode just to you know B sides, rarities, other things that we missed. Uh, we could answer questions from people that have been you know contacting us about this, that, and the other thing about how I'm a giant idiot because I don't like Elemental or you know whatever. <laughs> <laughs> we'll just have your dad on so he can tell me I'm dumb. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, okay, so let's move to the next song, which, oh, man, I... I'm already laughing just because uh, that text you sent me earlier today. Good God. Let's just turn it on. I, I'm going to let you, if, if, listener, dear listener, if you're not a Tears for Fears person, or maybe you're just kind of a Tears for Fears fan, you haven't really dove into this album yet, I want you to listen to this. Just listen to this. Here we go. I just, I just like picture him like, oh hell yeah, let's do it. <laughs> there it is. My God. So what was it earlier this afternoon? I just get a text message in all caps from Steve Cuff that just says, "What's the matter with your life? Did someone come and shoot your wife?" <laughs> and I'm just like, "Oh man, he hates this." <laughs> I, I really this is just like it's the most butt rock butt rock riff of all time and then the fact that the song starts off with what what I can oh I, I mean it's got to be like a top 10 worst line from a song I've ever heard ever it's just so zero effort and and the whole like butt rock vibe from it too. It sounds like a like a throwaway Stone Temple pilot song or like a fuel song or something. And it it does not fit with the rest of the record at all. At all. The only thing I can think of is I'm guessing this was probably fun to play in the studio and probably fun to play live and maybe that's why it was a thing. I don't yeah. know. And I, I think maybe the butt rock that you've uh, anointed it with, <laughs> um, I think is maybe more just like, I, I think maybe some of that's even just the influence of Tim Palmer's production style. Yeah, I yeah. think that um, he has a really good band in the studio, and this is maybe them just trying to really get it out. It is a little like, I mean, it's it's meant to be, and this is quoting Roland Orsbold, it's an aggressive love song. And I think the aggression 
really comes out, and it's it's sort of a very left field turn, especially for a band like Tears for Fears. Um, not my style necessarily. No, um, no, not and something that I've always been. Not something I've gone to Tears for Fears for ever. Yeah, um, I, I don't think aggression is their strong suit. I got to be honest. Tears for Fears does a lot of things really well. I think that when it comes to you know crafting really smart pop music, you'd be hard pressed to find anyone better. But a- aggressive rock love song, not okay. Not okay. Yeah, and, and I think it speaks to just again going back to the fact that this is like an album with sort of the running theme of relationships and love and family, and this is maybe the character sort of a quasi-autobiographical album for Rule and Noiseable, but maybe this is just, like, the point where he feels like he's just kind of losing it. And uh, I know that the line, what's the matter with your life? Did someone come and shoot your wife? <laughs> sort of very... Like, <laughs> Sorry. No, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah! Yeah, uh, man, I, I, well, I never thought I'd compare it to STP until now. I thought maybe just like a lighter I version am, of Pearl I Jam. Am, but... I, am. I said, somebody go and shoot your wife. <laughs> oh, God. Um, I mean, I, I think lyrically it's um, the idea that maybe, and th- there's nobody knows specifically, and you shouldn't have to know specifically, but there was something going on at, during his marriage at the time. I think he maybe kind of did something he wasn't supposed to do. Uh-oh. I don't know if that's like infidelity, but like even the lines like, what do I have to do to save you from worry? Cut off my nose to spite my face. I don't know. What can I do to make you happy, mm-hmm. wife? Um, and so I think that's him sort of coming to terms with the fact that he screwed up, but he also sure. wants to like, just get past it and maybe he just can't. So yeah. the idea that someone came and shoot your wife just as he planned, it's like, Oh, well I did that. Everything's screwed up now. And maybe that metaphor isn't the best one to use no. <laughs> just because lyrically it's just kind of like, Ugh. but I would hope that at least in the context of, what this album means and what he's going through just as an individual at least makes more sense and could be more forgivable. And maybe that's just the big fan in me talking right now. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I don't know if we mentioned it, but the title of this track is sorry. <laughs> yeah. And I know he's been kind of, you know, like tongue in cheek with his song titles before. And this is another instance where the first time I listened to this record, I wasn't looking at the song titles and this came on. I was just like, and then I immediately looked at the name of the song and I was like, I forgive you, but that was still not okay. (laughs) Yeah. And it is an example again, too, just like if you don't have any context that makes this a very weird listen. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And, and you got to think too, like you're the super fan. How many people listened to this album and actually understood what was going on in the background? Probably not that many. I think, yeah, you had to be a really big fan to kind of really get into it. And I think that maybe that was part of the reason why it sort of commercially was not a smashing success. Sure, um, sure. And I, think, I mean, now at least, like, you're, you're a super fan now, so you can you can Google old interviews, you can look things up on the band. I can only imagine what it was like in 1995 or whenever this came out. 
It was, I would actually say it's easier because there was like a f- community of fans who had tons of websites. Oh, a lot wow. of those have gone down now. And I actually, for this podcast, I wanted to research because I know, I always remember there was something else he said about that first, that first couplet to the song. And I know like in reviews, they always kind of made fun of him for it. He said, well, actually like it, it represents this, but it's also based on like a story I read in the paper and I couldn't find it, although I did stumble across uh, Tears for Fears fan fiction. Ooh. And how, yeah. what, was, what was that like? Well, imagine, Steve, I don't – like I'm trying to put myself in the shoes of either Roland Orsville or Kurt Smith. Let's say you or, you or I stumbled upon Discourse from the Big Chair fan fiction. Oh. Yeah. And we read stories that fans were writing about us. But in very poor grammar, but basically just described <laughs> the both of us in, in some sort of compromising situation oh, where geez. the only way out was to get romantically involved. <laughs> that seems to be the way a lot of fan fiction ends up, I feel. Yeah, just your basic slash fiction. Just your basic <laughs> slash fic there. But it was kind of like I came across and immediately I was kind of like, uh, I should just let that be. Well, and <laughs> I mean, I kind of knew what I was getting into, but it's like, <laughs> Jesus, come on. Not not to, you know, take away from everybody's literary aspirations, but it's like, oh, man. I'm just trying to think, like, what if they came across and, like, oh, God. <laughs> yeah, I always wonder about that. I mean, if, if you want to write discourse from the big chair fan fiction, um, we will definitely read it. Or at the very least, I will see the email, change the title, and then forward it to Steve as an emergency so he'll open it and begin reading it. So <laughs> that, that is the thing that you can do. Um. Yeah. Wow. That's that's bizarre. I guess this would be the album to do it for, though, because I, I would definitely, if I was writing Tears for Fear slash fiction, I would choose this record to kind of as the basis of my world, or actually between this record and the last record where they reunite. Like you kind of fill in the gaps of how they, you know, made love or whatever to, I don't know, <laughs> rekindle their the flame of Tears for Fears. Okay. Enough about fictional sex between musicians. We got another track to talk about. <laughs> Sorry for that deviation, everybody. It's been a weird one. This is a, it's this is a weird record. We're gonna we're gonna fly off the handle a little bit. So this this is Humdrum and Humble, which is, by the way, uh, a song title that you probably can't say five times fast. No, not gonna try. I have a feeling. I'm gonna go out and make. I'm gonna go ahead and make a bold prediction. I don't love this song. I think it's pretty cool, but it's not great. It's a good headphone song. Oh yeah, oh yeah. And this is another track too, where they've kind of got the production end of things figured out, and the song can breathe a little bit. If I were to guess, I, I think for the, the Tears for Fears super fans, this is probably their favorite track. I can imagine a lot of them liking this because, for me, there's like a definite like uh, Beatles influence going on here, mm-hmm. and also it's kind of a throwback to even older Tears for Fears stuff when I listen to this, so I, I think it probably, I don't know, it, it seems like it'd be long and like sowing the seeds of love or something like that, so yeah, I'm sure the super fans love this one. I don't. I don't know if super fans love this one. Ooh. I. Uh, I, I thought I knew you, Tears for Fears fans. Well, I mean, please write in. Let us know. Um, but I uh, think that um, this is sort of a leftover from the Elemental sessions. Oh, okay. 
and um, which aren't that far apart from these sessions, by the way. Mm-hmm. But uh, this is also an example of like when I mentioned earlier, they switched labels. They left Mercury after a long time to go to Epic. There's a lot of sort of like two sides to the story, but there's um, one side where it's like the record label went up to Roland Orsville. They said, hey, since Mercury already started production for Raul and the Kings of Spain, we kind of want you to change the track list a little bit because the promotional copies are already out there. People have heard this. Like, let's just change it up a little bit. Mm-hmm. And then he kind of said, oh, yeah, I'm totally ready to do that. So there was a song that was originally supposed to be on on the album that followed uh, the song Sorry, which was a... Okay which turned into being a B-side called The Queen of Compromise, which is actually a really good song. Uh, instead, they took that off and they put in Hum Drum and Humble and the oh. song that follows this one, I Choose You. And it's really kind of like, it doesn't quite, I think, fit. I think it's kind of like an unfortunate choice. I feel like it almost distracts from at least the flow and the story of the album a little bit. Yeah, yeah. No, I'll definitely agree with you there because... I mentioned earlier that I felt like this was the most consistent Tears for Fears record is, is in terms of like the, the overall sound and the feel of it and everything. But this is the one track where it sticks out. And I don't even think it's a bad song at all, not by any stretch. But no. it's just like, oh, where did this come from? This this sounds like it's from, you know, five years ago. Yeah, I think it's, it's a would-be B-side that was forced to be an album cut. Um, and I don't know if, and like Roland Orsville said at the time, like, yeah, well, I was actually happy to do this because I think it's like these two songs actually help the flow of the album a little bit better. Uh, this works, which I think was just a kind of nice way of conceding to his record label's demands, saying like, hey, maybe you should put something a little bit more peppy on this. Mm-hmm. Well, are we going to get a, uh, a six LP remastered re-release so we can finally hear it the way it was meant to be heard? We might. You never know. That was right. a teaser. Not really. No, that's not a teaser. That's. <laughs> I'm working on it actually right now as we speak. And I, <laughs> How's that I've going been, for you? I've been to Sony Music. I've been to Universal. They've all passed. But is Big Chair the only one that they've they've re, they've given the, like the the grand remastering uh, treatment to? Uh, they've given it to the Hurting. Uh, okay. That had like a four disc box set. Um, the first three albums have been remastered dozens of times. Like even Seeds of Love has had at least one remastered version. Uh, and Raul and the Kings of Spain has been, like I said, remastered for an expanded UK edition just like back in 2009. So hmm. not too long ago. Okay. Um, Interesting. Well, I don't know if I'd buy Raul and the Kings of Spain on vinyl, but uh, if there was a 180 gram vinyl re-release of, uh, uh-oh, Adam Myros is calling me from Optimism Vaccine. Oh, <laughs> that's a problem. Uh, yeah, if there was a 180 gram vinyl re-release of the hurting, I would buy it in probably a heartbeat. But we're not talking about the hurting. We're talking about Raul and the Kings of Spain and the song "I Choose You." Hmm. Uh, there we go. A late night slow jam for you, there, Steve. Yeah, this um, and this song, I think, considering it was a 11th hour edition, mm. uh. It does fit in with the theme, like this specifically song sounds like a song to his wife, like a few of these other songs are. Um, sort of him coming to terms with the disaster that kind of plagues the first half of this album. Um, but it feels unfinished. Yeah. 
I that's actually my thoughts exactly. I um, <laughs> but my only note that I had for this song was I put demo question mark. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it definitely has that feeling. I think it, and maybe he just really liked the the, the actual demo of the song so much and wanted to kind of keep that sparse atmosphere. I don't think it fails but it just like i feel like there's just there needs to be like one more thing or there needs to be a few more notes here it's just kind of like he's giving himself like a guitar and a piano lesson mm-hmm. oh, but like i mean the lyrics are there obviously but like just musically it's kind of like missing something yeah no i i agree i agree completely it's just it it doesn't really do much for me uh it's it, it's not a bad song but it's just i don't know it's something's missing something is definitely missing but that brings us to another rocker. <laughs> oh boy, the one oh with the F word. Indeed. Yeah, let's talk about this one. And uh, <laughs> wow, 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 wow. <laughs> Thankfully, I, I, I need to I need to find it to uh, cue it up here. I, I I will say for everybody listening to that this is the one song I was looking forward to discussing maybe the most, at least with you, Mister Cuff. Oh, yeah. Um, I don't know why it's not playing. That's weird. Wait. There we there we go. This is a real gaff-laden podcast. Hey, there we go. It's like a car crash. And this uh, is one of those songs, too, where a little bit of that Beatles stuff comes through, but you're also getting kind of the grungy rock and roll here and the dad rock. Like, this is a major dad riff coming through. Yeah. <laughs> And then spoken word. And then some spoken word. But I want to get to these lyrics. I think it's it's like the first line, isn't it? It's coming. Here it comes. Ah! So, is he using a derogatory term for a homosexual? Or is he smoking a cigarette? Yeah, I don't know. But he's British and, like, he says cigarettes in that one line. Maybe he was talking about the specific cigarette that this person was smoking. Yeah. It's, Is it it's possible? Just, it, I've never been able to I'm, figure I'm it out. I'm guessing it's supposed to be both, and that's him, like, winking. Ha, ha, ha. But, Jesus. That, that, doesn't, that doesn't work too well in 2015. We, we can give him the benefit of the doubt here, but still, it's just like, oh, boy. That's, that's rough. Yeah. And, and because, I mean, obviously, I don't think that I don't believe he is homophobic. I would actually be very surprised. Yeah, and yeah, I don't, I'm sure he's not. Even, and I don't even know if that's necessarily... A, I mean, obviously the word's there. I don't know if I would call it a homophobic lyric. I don't know if there's also, like, because of, like, this is such a... For him, it's kind of like his, like, singer-songwriter literate album. I mean, maybe it's not... doesn't fall into place at, in all the right parts, but, like, maybe this is from the perspective of a character. He's kind of becoming mm-hmm. um yeah i uh that one line it's always kind of like hmm especially because it is such a like you said like a very like kind of an, an, another aggressive rock song at least as far as like the guitar parts oh absolutely it's, strangely aggressive <laughs> i mean it's almost like um it, it reminds me of uh not stylistically necessarily but like another british band that had a very aggressive American pop rock style song, which was way more popular, was Dire Straits' Money for Nothing. And yeah, yeah. I think that's far more egregious with their use 
of the word, and they're clearly not referencing it in the British way. So, yeah, yeah. I, I don't know, man. That's this is it's a tough one. It's a tough one. I don't know. Out of all the butt rock songs, it might be my favorite butt rocker on this record. But I don't know. I don't know. It's it's just another track where if I wasn't listening to this album for the for this particular podcast, I would see myself skipping over it. Yeah, it's not a song that I find myself going back to either as a huge fan. Um, but it's also like it's a butt rocker that drops that f bomb, but it also yeah. references Frida Kahlo. Mm-hmm. And it's also yeah, it's it's smarter than it lets on. And there's a few things that are going on in it that are really interesting. Like there's a couple, obviously not that main riff, but there's a couple of guitar parts here and there where it's it's almost reminiscent of something like Blur might do. So you know, mm-hmm. there's 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 little there's little nuggets Park of goodness. <laughs> Park, exactly. <laughs> uh, and then so this this leads us into I guess the last proper song more or less is is that mm-hmm. is that fair to say yeah i'd say that's very fair okay so if i can get it again with the return of somebody you're familiar with oh so this this next song actually is a duet it's not just creep vocals right nope <laughs> it is roland orsbull and the returning olita adams okay because in my head i was thinking like because of the weird creepy vocal effect i was thinking like he didn't have kurt smith and he alienated the woman from sowing the seeds of love. So he just, like, modulated his voice to make his own duet. <laughs> and he does modulate his voice in this a little bit, too. Yeah. Um, which I think is a slightly questionable choice. It's it's very, very strange. I will say that this, until very recently, was probably not one of my favorites. But I really, like, have grown a new appreciation for it. Um, lyrically especially um, there's a line where he talks and the reason why this is a duet is because this is clearly like meant to be a discussion between two partners, specifically him and his wife um, with Alita Adams singing the part of his wife and I think it's playing in the background right now, I can't hear it that well but like he's talking about go get a volunteer we'll we'll pay him well he's talking about going to see a marriage counselor yeah, yeah. I, yeah, I think lyrically you're right. Like This is definitely one of the stronger tracks on the album. Um, musically, though, and it, it, a lot of it leans on production, it just does not work. I can't help but think, like, this sounds like, God, like a 90s Elton John song. <laughs> yeah, I was going to mention that during, uh, during Secrets as well, but yeah. Yeah, it's... yeah, yeah. It's like, it's like the B-side to Candle in the Wind. It is, and it, God, it's so, it's like, actually, I think, like, could be a very powerful song. It's a very mm-hmm. personal song, mm-hmm. and it's sung the right way. It's, like, that element is there. It just, production-wise, it's, I agree, it's, uh, when we were talking about Sketches of Pain, like, this is a song, like, God, I wish they had, like, an actual, actual orchestra. Mm-hmm. Like, how cool would that have been? Oh, absolutely. Um, and without like all like the warm synthy sounds, like, I think like a actual grand piano and like just like I don't know, like this is I, in some ways I, I hate to say it, like I feel like the song is a bit of a missed opportunity. Mm-hmm. Oh, totally, 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 lot of potential here because there's there's tracks in this album where I don't know if they can be salvaged, and this is one where it's like, 
man, I don't hate this song, but there's so many things that I just, I listened to this, I'm like, oh, God, I wish this was something that it clearly is not. Although, I mean, I could see Bon Iver doing this, <laughs> some oh, other God. callback to Bon Iver, because um, <laughs> obviously there is like that, you know, sort of like cheesy synthesized orchestra sound in some of his stuff, but mm, sure. yeah, if they could have scaled it back a little bit and just like really like, I mean, a lot of the focus obviously is on the vocals, which makes sense. That's the best yeah, part yeah. of this song. Um but yeah, it's I. It's a song that I listen to, and I think this is great. But I also think, like God, what could have been? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I think these are—I don't want to say they're mistakes, but I think these are things that he definitely corrects when Kurt Smith rejoins the band mm-hmm. ten years later. And I'm really looking forward to listening to that album because I've heard not only good things from you, but good things from people who aren't just Tears for Fears super fans. So really? I'm yeah, I am genuinely excited to listen to that record. Uh and and I guess we can just talk for just a, a brief second here, but the last track is a reprise of Los Reyes Catolicos. Mm-hmm. Uh which is I, I don't think it's identical. There's a few changes. Uh he's saying a bunch of stuff in Spanish and I I'm not sure what's going on. Uh, yeah. but but it's it's very similar to the previous yeah. version. It's basically it's a reprise. He he also says the titular line of the album again. Ah, yes. And I think it's just a good way. I really think it's a good way to close the album. Like this is the last thing you read in the book. This sort of like it doesn't necessarily sum up the story, but it sums up the feel. And um, I think it's an appropriate ending. Um, I uh, you know again goes back to the ghosts all gone. I think he's gone through all these things. He's kind of getting there in the midway point where you first hear the song, and then now, yep, okay, ghosts are gone. Everything's fine. The house has been cleansed. Well, and what a journey. I, I am just glad that I had you here to walk me through this one because I, I do not – this is without question my least favorite Tears for Fears album that I've listened to so far. But now that you've, you've sort of explained some of the backstory to me, I feel like I could give it another listen and maybe enjoy it a little bit more despite my reservations. Uh, overall, though, I would say whether or not you're a fan – this is this is not not something you should really probably bother with, um, with the exception of, you know, a couple of tracks on here are pretty cool. I would say if you're really interested, if you've been getting into Tears for Fears, maybe been following the podcast, getting into the albums and stuff, Falling Down is cool. God's Mistake is cool. Uh, there's a few other tracks here that, you know, maybe you want to listen to uh, me and my big ideas. I don't know. But on the whole, you can you could probably skip a lot of this record. Although I would say that it is uh, integral to the at least Tears for Fears lineage, um, mm-hmm. going from the herding to Raul and the Kings of Spain is sort of like if you're interested in the story and kind of like where they're going, at least Roland Orzabal, where he's going as an artist, at least trying to kind of like get through his life. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of essential listening here, um, but yeah, without the context though, like. This can be a troubling listen, as Steve just learned. Um, but yeah, if you're willing to do a little bit of research, um, there's it's an interesting story, and there's it's yeah. I uh, but I will say too that this is the one album that I always had trouble getting through at first. I've grown a newer appreciation for it, and I will admit that sometimes I have to look past some of the production quality. Mm-hmm. 
Um, but yeah, uh, I, if you want to get the whole story of at least their legend, this is something you probably want to check out. But yeah, I also agree with Steve in that if you're just not interested, maybe it's best you stay away besides some of those key tracks. Absolutely. All right. Well, I think that's a good place to wrap up. So if you enjoyed the podcast, please go onto our iTunes page, subscribe to our feed on iTunes or whatever podcast program you like to use. Also, make sure you rate us, write a review of our podcast. It helps us out a lot, helps people discover us. You can also check out our stuff on optimismvaccine.com. Uh, pretty soon, I, I just started a new job, so I haven't had a lot of free time, but I'm going to get these episodes up on YouTube as well. You can comment on there. If you want to email us, optimismvaccine at gmail.com. You can ask us questions. If you ask us a question about Tears for Fears, we will read and answer your question on air. That's my promise to you. Also, if you want to talk to us on Twitter, at Optimism Vaccine is the official account, and you can also individually speak to us. I'm at Steve Cuff. That's at Steve C-U-F-F. And Mr. Coleman, what's your Twitter handle? I'm at Colemania. That is at K-O-H-L-M-A-N-I-A. Beautiful. So yeah, tweet at us, and we will be back next week with Everybody Loves a Happy Ending. 